Well, if you track through history, you will discover amazing women of faith, individuals who have done remarkable things. I dug up a few names that might uh, almost uh, live in folklore for us because we've heard the names, uh, may not know all that they've done, and yet uh, we're familiar with them. First, the first one that I came across was Florence Nightingale. Uh, one that sort of almost sounds like a fairy tale to many people. It's so far removed from us, but she was part of the Church of England. Prayed that God would give her a defining task that would really mark her life and give her purpose. And she ended up, during the Crimean War, was trained and organized nurses to deal with the wounded. And that was her contribution to dealing and moving alongside people that desperately needed help, and she was on the front lines of initiating that. Most of you would know the name Mother Teresa, and you might have mixed emotions about that, but there's no question about the reality of her piety and her self-sacrifice, the faith that she had, catapulted her into caring for people who could not care for themselves. Uh, And as a result of that, got the world's attention by her generosity and sacrifice by winning the Nobel Peace Prize back in 1979. There's individuals like uh, Susan Anthony, who was a part of the Quakers, had a long history of anti-slave activism. Uh, Other individuals like uh, Rosa Parks would be maybe more familiar to uh, many of you even than us Canadians uh, because uh, she was the one that uh, refused to sit in the back of the bus and allow that sense of prejudice to drive them into a second-rate kind of role. There's other individuals, uh, Evangeline Booth, who was uh, parents, founded the Salvation Army, and she dedicated her life to leading that organization for almost 30 years. There's other individuals, uh, Charlotte Moon, who was a Southern Baptist missionary who spent 40 years in China as a teacher and an evangelist and helping uh, spread the gospel in China. Uh, Fanny Crosby, one who was totally blind and yet wrote over 9,000 hymns. I can't even get a book off the shelf, much less write 9,000 hymns. My goodness. It's amazing the creative imagination that God gives to individuals. Amy Carmichael, uh, one who was a missionary to India and founded a mission there that rescued thousands of children from the idea of prostitution and, sl- and enslavement. Uh, Corey Tenboom is one that many of us would know who was uh, imprisoned by the Nazis during the war and actually saw, lost some family members in some of the death camps that they were imprisoned in, and yet she would, her family were on the front lines of helping the Jews. Now, your idea of faith might look different a little bit. Sometimes our faith uh, gets cocooned into our own environment in terms of what real great faith looks like, but there's no question that women have been on the front lines of shaping the church and influencing it in so many different ways and impacting our world. This morning, as we step into Romans chapter 16, I want you to get familiar with some people that maybe you've never paid attention to. There's 27 names spelled out. I think there's 29 people identified in Romans chapter 16. I can suspect that most of you get to Romans 16. It's like, oh, a whole bunch of names. I don't care. You skip over it, get to the benediction, and we're good. Uh, And so some of these people you probably have never paid any attention to. Uh, You've probably never thought about the impact of their life and what it looks like. This week we're going to look at the first couple of verses, looking at Phoebe, who was uh, an individual who 
Paul praised very highly in terms of her life and ministry. Uh, we're going to use that as sort of our springboard to not just deal with that. We'll come back to the other parts of the text, but in the next six, seven weeks, we're going to look at the whole idea of role of women in the church. We're going to look at uh, what the scriptures look like, and next week I'm going to, for those of you that are unfamiliar with it, uh, share with you the basic three models that get uh, shared in terms of how the church has looked at role of women and how that has changed over the years and what position should we really be having. The great movement right now is what we call the egalitarian, the, the equalitarian type movement that suggests that women should have, because we're equal in Christ, should have every single role uh, that a man serves in the church, whether it's pastors or elders. Uh, some of you may care about that, some don't. You know churches that would have women who are on the elders and, and are pastors. For some of us, we might go, well, not gonna make a big deal about it. Some of it feels awkward. Others wouldn't feel comfortable in that environment. So we're not quite sure how we're supposed to respond to those things. We have a whole bunch of scriptures filtering through our heart and yet, at times, most of us never really give thought to what should this look like, especially in our culture now where the idea of social justice and equality is certainly the hot-button issue in terms of dealing with really sensitive issues in our culture. It only stands to reason that we give some thought to it. Will everyone agree? No, I don't think so. Uh, I remember growing up, so to speak, in a church in Calgary who uh, was a very, in some respects, traditional, I would say it was probably more complementarian, and I'll explain those next week if you don't understand the terms, who just, uh, as an elder board about a year ago, voted that they wanted to support an egalitarian position. Uh, what makes that interesting, and at least interesting to you, is that they happened to hire a pastor from Rochester uh, about a year ago. He got there and went, no, we're not doing that. And so they had a whole segment of the congregation leave while he tried to reinforce the idea that certain roles and responsibilities are for the men and we can't compromise that. Both claiming scriptural precedent for the reasons they want to think about what they want to do. And so it's, it's an issue that maybe you care about, maybe you don't. Uh, it's one that obviously touches our lives and we want to step into it softly this morning I'm not going to get us down into the weeds so deep that I can't pull you out by next week. Uh, but there are, you do need to know that people give a lot of careful thought to the realities we're going to talk about. I think it's problematic for us to get into mudslinging that some people get labeled as liberal and not biblical and others are get traditional and legalistic. That becomes difficult because people are operating out of often what they grew up and were told we often don't really think about it, we just accept what people talk about and give to us as we grow up in the church framework, and sometimes it's hard to understand. So the text that we're looking at this morning, now all that being said, let's jump into the text and look at what probably be with the easiest part of this series is looking at Phoebe. Uh, she is an individual that uh, we don't maybe know much about. She is, uh, we'll deal with it, but the text says this. Paul's writing, and he writes to the Romans, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cenchreae, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. 
Now, some very simple statements in a culture that was predominantly ruled and governed by men, and so that obviously plays into the conversations, but Paul has nothing but positive things to say about her, and there's reasons for it. There's really four things that he mentions about this particular woman, and it gives us insight into the, the, her life and her ministry and her character. So there, uh, the first thing is that she talks about him as a sister. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Now, Paul did not talking about a blood relative of his. Sister, for most of us we would understand, is a term used in Christian circles to refer to other people who are not part of my physical family, but they are part of my spiritual family. So we talk a lot about brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that's not just rhetoric or branding. That, that actually is the reality for those who come to faith in Christ and surrender to God by receiving Christ into their life for the forgiveness of sins, the scriptures are pretty adamant about that. We become part of the body of Christ. And he uses that language to, in many ways, as a metaphor for our physical bodies, that we are as knit together in Christ as our physical bodies are knit together as one whole unit. And so we become part of this integrated family, this organic union, as it were, or spiritual union, called the Church of Christ, and, and this is family. So it's not just, you know, a cultural thing where he's sort of just referring to people as, well, you know, this is not my real uncle or aunt, but we know them really well, they've hung with us our whole life, we're just going to call them that. There's a defining spiritual reason for calling her sister. At some point, Phoebe had to make a personal decision of the reality of Christ, and she had to acknowledge her own sin in whatever way that she did that, and she had to surrender to God through faith in Christ. She had to respond to the gospel. And like every individual who's going to be part of this family, it's not automatic because I grew up in a religious home. It's not for those who simply have good activities in their life and tend to see themselves as essentially good. Those people don't necessarily belong to God's family. It, it's, it's, it's the reason he calls her a sister, or someone would refer to someone as a brother in Christ, is because God has touched her heart with the reality of his mercy and grace, and she has taken a step to receive Christ into her life and be part of that family that community of faith. And so the human condition needs that. We, we need to realize that our biggest need, our, the greatest disunity, the, the great disequalizer of life and people and ethnic groups is sin. That's the, that's the defining breach between a sense of humanity. And so this is why he refers to his sister. So he treats her like family. But he doesn't do so just because she's accepted Christ Paul's had personal connections with her. And so the second thing he tells us very simply is, is this woman who has made a tremendous impact even in his own life, he calls her a servant. Now the word here, servant, is the same word that we see in the scriptures that, that is the word for our word deacon or deaconess. Uh, it can be used in a very informal sense where it's not talking about some kind of position or official office or whatever in the church, it really describes a person who is actively engaged in caring and serving Jesus and whatever it happens to look like. And so there, you can use it informally. Someone who is actively engaged. They're not a pew sitter. They're not a spectator. They're not just showing up to be present. She is actively engaged in serving others. 
But the other way that it gets used is more of in a formal sense. Now, that's really hard to assess at this point because Paul's writing to uh, a church that he hasn't seen. Uh, he was, of course, in Corinth uh, and other places that we'll explain in a minute, but uh, he describes her as a, as a servant of a church, a specific church in Cancria. Now, you may not know where it is, so I'll show you where it is, so at least you have a sense of a real place. If you take a picture of sort of the Middle East in that sense, you will notice that uh, Italy is there. You'll recognize maybe towns like Thessalonica, uh, Troas and Ephesus. That's on sort of that further border of Asia, what part of where Paul take, took his uh, second and third missionary journey, where he looped over to Troas, went up to Neapolis, around to Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica and Berea, and then made his way down to Corinth. Now, that's the big map. If you zero in on Corneth, you'll notice that Cancria is a coastal city about 10 miles from Corneth, right on the coast. And uh, it's, it's an interesting element. We're not going to go into all the cultural elements at this point. But the idea here is that when he says that she is a servant of the church, it means, one, she is very much involved in ministry, but the fact that, she, that he tells them to welcome her in part of his statement here means that she's probably been an official representative to take the letter that Paul is writing to them and present it to them. She might not necessarily read it. Uh, she's just a messenger carrying it there, probably with some other people as representatives of the church. And it's very possible that she would be what we would call a deaconess or fulfill that role, although that's really difficult to prove just simply with the information we have here. But I want you to notice it can be used in both ways. Um, the element here is that she is also called uh, a saint. Now, if you have a different background, uh, for instance, if you have a Catholic background, you might use the idea of saint a little bit differently than the way he, Paul is using it here. Uh, a saint is any person who has actually accepted Christ. The word saint means a holy one. The, the root idea is to set something apart. So, for instance, if you are part of a sports team or you apply for a job, at some point, somebody picks you for the team. In one sense, it's the simplest way that when someone picks you, that you're set apart now to play on that team and play a role in what's going on. If you, among other people, make applications to a job and you get picked by them, then that's being set apart. That, In a sense, you've been wholly set apart to function within that group. And so the root idea is that a saint is somebody who has been chosen by God and called out of the world to, in a sense, to receive Christ, to find forgiveness of sins, and then being part of a community of faith. And so it doesn't sound very glamorous when you talk about it that way, but the idea is, is we've all been set apart, for those who've trusted Christ, set apart to be part of his family, be part of a community, and to learn to now live in a way that God wants us to live that reflects his character and his values and his priorities, not mine. So in some respects, life is an ongoing basis of shredding and setting aside my personal convictions and my thoughts and continually learning to adopt what God's word says, and that may be part of the journey we're on even in this series. But the idea is, is that she's, it says saints. It's not singular, it's plural. So she's part of a, a collective group that has more than one person in it, and it's from a real place. This isn't just making stuff up. 
And as a messenger, who probably these people wouldn't know, she would need this kind of commendation from Paul to just walk in and be accepted by these people because they wouldn't necessarily know her from Adam if I want to, or Eve in terms of what's going on. Um, so that becomes part of her makeup. So she's a sister in Christ. She is um, a servant who clearly demonstrates by the activity of her life and by how she's been involved in those people's lives, recognized by her activity and her character and possibly by an official position, that she is a woman of character and great faith. The last thing that he mentions here is that she is a sponsor. Now, that's not the word that's used there so much. It's the word patron. I want to pause here for just a minute just to understand and build the context. For some of you, this might feel uncomfortable, but I also want you to understand kind of a little bit of the weeds that we're dealing with. A patron literally is a sponsor who is active in helping others, especially in the sense of supporting an individual or a cause. So why does Paul talk about a patron, which another word for it, just for the sake of alliteration, is the idea of being a sponsor. Well, a patron... You should note that this is the one place that you find the feminine form of this particular word. And here it clearly refers to a woman, to Phoebe, but it's the only place that you're going to find the feminine form of this. We actually find it in other places that have the masculine form of it, and I'll introduce you to that in a minute. But this is the only time it's used uh, in reference to a woman. The other definitions that you see it is the masculine form, and that is, literally, it means to so influence others as to cause them to follow a recommended course of action to guide, direct, or lead. So that doesn't necessarily change the definition just because it goes from feminine to masculine. That means, obviously, he uses this word because she's a woman of influence. She has a way of leading by her example and her character and possibly by her position, which usually they get because of who they are, not because they're you know, paying people off to get some kind of position of respect. But she is one who, by her life and her commitment and her faith and her character, has qualified her to be recognized as this person of influence who is making a difference. Informally and formally, she's a woman of faith. And she's making a difference in the church. Now, the other places that this particular word, just so you can get the the scope of this, is used in passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.12. Now, this one doesn't actually identify a male or female leader. It just talks about this sort of more ambiguous statement. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you. The word over you is the same word that's used in the, mas- it's used in the masculine form here. So it indicates a person of influence, the person who's leading. But it never specifies whether this is a man or woman in this particular text. And then it says, that are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I think in some respects Phoebe could fit into this because it doesn't designate one or the other. And she's a woman who's labored and served and made a commitment and influenced people. And so she would be one that could fit this definition depending on the bigger context. The, the second area is 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. Now this one will probably sound more familiar because this is where Paul or Timothy is specifically dealing with roles of elders and deacons and or deaconesses depending on how you interpret the text. And here he says, he must manage his own household well. 
Now, the bigger context, of course, is in 1 Timothy 3, starts talking about elders, which we traditionally, uh, in its root idea, are older people and individuals with the kind of character and respect and maturity that can shepherd or oversee uh, a, a body of believers. He must manage, that's the same word that we're using here, to lead, guide, to influence his own household well, and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Uh, Earlier in the text, he'll make the comment that it needs to be the husband of one wife. So he's clearly talking about male individuals who would qualify for this particular role. Now, when we get into the weeds of this thing down the road, Uh, culture becomes a huge pendulum in these discussions because when you understand the culture, someone's going to say, well, that was just a male hierarchy type environment and culture, and uh, when we get into those discussions, we'll have to see the weight of what culture means and what it says, and we'll talk about that. But at this point, what we do is the text clearly says that, obviously, words it in a way that would indicate that men would be the ones qualifying for elders but they have to be able to manage. They have to, in a sense, lead or to be influencers. The next one is 1 Timothy 3.12. A little further down the text, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children. So it's the same word that's used here. So it does have the implications of the idea of being in leadership, being in roles of influence and making a difference as you begin to think about their pattern. And it's the same word, even though it's in the feminine form, which would make sense, but it's used to Phoebe as she talks about being a deacon, a servant of the church at Kenkrii. So there does seem to be a clear indication that she had not only in her character, but possibly a role of leadership in that particular church. First uh, Timothy 5:17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who are preaching and teaching. So in some churches, we don't use the language here a lot, we usually make a distinction between pastors and elders. Uh, That's flexes between churches. Uh, I grew up in a church where the pastor was literally a teaching elder and basically had that role. It depends on how you look at the role pastor. Some people look at it as an official position in a church, although it's really hard to find that in the scriptures. You see that they're gifted individuals, if you look at different passages like 1 Corinthians 12, where uniquely Christ is the one who gives gifted individuals to the whole church in order to establish not only the, the mission of the gospel, but for establishing churches. When Paul and Timothy start talking about leadership within local assemblies, they talk in terms of elders and deacons. And so that seems to be a little different language. But the the term here is, uh, is, I want you to feel it a little bit in the sense that it is a term used very much in terms of leadership roles and responsibilities in the church. Now that being said, let me also notice not only those four things, that she is a sister in Christ, that she's a servant of the church, or the very nature of it is that of that particular local assembly in Kenkrii, she is a deaconess or one who serves and is recognized that way, and most understood, she's the one that helped carry the letter to the Romans, and so they've trusted her implicitly with that journey and responsibility. But the other element is I want you to notice Paul's recommendation. As he gets through the letter, he recognizes these things, and some of it will be a little redundant. He recognizes her service in the local church, 
but he also recognizes her support for the mission of the church. You'll notice he says she's been a patron and she's not only done, she's done it for me as the Apostle Paul. Now you know Paul is a bit obsessed about the gospel. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And as he came through there and established churches and she came to faith in Christ, God changed her heart to be so actively involved that she wanted to support Paul. And Paul has even mentioned that at the front end of this letter, that, listen, I want to come to you and I want to be refreshed in your presence, but I need your help. I need resources from you so I can keep the mission of the gospel going. And apparently this idea of being a, a patron was something that was very much part of her life. She was one who supported others and Paul was one of them. But she also made sacrifices for other people in the ministry. Because he not only talks about himself, but he says she's done this for many other people. I mean, she's a bit of a force to deal with. She's eagerly and enthusiastically and intentionally making her mark, as it were, making a mark for the gospel, and she's an influencer. And she is not only, she's not ruling over anything if you, in that sense, but she sees where things are going and she's full participant in the things that are happening. She's surrendered to Jesus. She is recognized in her church. She has clearly a position or a life of influence and she's pretty impressive. She's constantly taking the initiative to get involved and Paul sees that and recognizes it publicly to these particular believers. One of the things that we have, uh, that really is a great credit to this church is the women who have served over the years, years and years and years, tirelessly and laboriously laboring, as it were, to invest in the work of the kingdom. They do it children's ministry and youth ministry and women's ministry. They've done it in, in the back corners of cleaning uh, the toilets, and they've done it on the front lines of making a difference of leading people to Christ. I, this, I think we'd be fair that as much as we as men think that we've made a contribution to lead where the church is going, it would be foolish not to recognize the force that God has worked through the women in this church to be where we're at. It's, and they are just as valuable as us as men. I mean, that may sound like a stupid thing to say, but I think in our day and age we need to say that. We seem to have all kinds of interesting ideas about uh, superiority and authority and power. That's all part of the discussion as you get into it. And there's been some interesting things said on both sides of the fence in terms of dealing with traditional views of role of women, of complementarian views, and even egalitarian views that we're going to have to sort of dig into and look at a little bit. Of course, everybody has their way of constructing their arguments to make the most sense to themselves. And that's always a danger. But at the heart of this, it would be foolish of us not to recognize that as we suggested in this, there's very few things that are more powerful than a woman of faith empowered by God's grace in changing the lives of people and the church. God didn't save them to be second-rate individuals in our community. And so as we step into this reality, we've got to recognize that the church thrives on men and women serving together, using their gifts, taking the initiative to make a difference for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will, at least as long as I'm here, always affirm that. 
at the heart of this, I want you to notice that he not only recommends her, he gives approval, he endorses her, he sanctions her, his consent on her life and ministry. And so he tells the church in Rome two things. Well, it's one thing with two components to it. He says, you need to receive her. You don't shun her. You don't put her in the back seat of the auditorium. You receive her in two ways. One, receive her in the Lord. You need to, you need to receive her like you're receiving your, your best family member in your, in your own household. Why? Because in the Lord, she is worthy of that kind of acceptance. I mean, it was part of communion. The, the reality of the gospel of Christ is that there's no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. I mean, if you think we have it rough now, try to be Jews and Gentiles trying to figure it out how to have communion back then. I mean, there's a whole different paradigm for them to figure out. And they have their own sense of prejudices and animosities that they had to work through in terms of, well, do we really want to hang with you? But at the heart of this, he's there to receive her in the Lord. So their common bond isn't her looks or appearance. It isn't where she comes in the country. It's not whether she's from Kenkri or she's from Jerusalem. She is an individual who is worthy of full, absolute acceptance by the church in the Lord Jesus because they're family. This is part of the community of faith. But the second thing that he says is that you need to receive her in a way worthy of the Lord. I mean, if I put flesh and bones to that, if Jesus himself made himself physical and appeared to us and walked in the door, do you think we might treat him a little differently than everybody else? Yeah, probably. But he's basically saying, I don't, you know, if the Apostle Paul shows up, everyone's going to pull out the red carpet, right? Because he's the Superman. He's the great apostle. He's the juggernaut that's cultivating all this. We all have our heroes. People that we love to listen on podcasts and individuals that we love to read about because they, we just resonate with their wisdom and their language and how they address issues. They side on things that we're concerned about, so we respond to them, and we, we have people that we love to connect with. And some of you, all, I suspect most of you, have individuals that every week, you're on a certain podcast, you're on a certain website, or you've got certain notifications that are coming up on a constant basis because there's some people that we love to listen to. But James spoke about this in the book of James. Well, you got a poor person that walks in and it might be easy to say, look, you know, you know we got some couches out there that are really comfortable. We'd love for you to sit out there and watch the service online. I mean, we, I know we wouldn't do that here. But if someone walked in that was really spiffy, had a lot of money, we, we, just, we just have this tendency that we're going to treat some people well. I mean, we do that in our own lives, right? If you're, I mean, we're attracted to certain people. I mean, young families would be attracted. If a young family walked in, we want to know you. You got kids? That's great. I want my kids to get to know your kids. But Paul says, listen, if Phoebe comes to you, you welcome her as if you're welcoming Jesus himself. You do it in a way that honors Jesus Christ and treats her with the highest level of respect. It's the least that you can do for someone who not only represents the church, but I'm recommending them to you, and you ought to do this in an absolutely worthy way. There is all kinds of stories that we could tell, but what I wanted to do is at least lay the groundwork this morning for you to think about the idea 
of how we think about each other in terms of ministry. It's very easy for us to start categorizing people and and thinking differently about certain individuals when they walk in the room. I was reading a story about Lilas Trotter, 1853 to 1928. She was a missionary in Africa. She was born into very uh, affluent means from a very happy home, and she loved the idea of painting. She was actually a pretty skilled painter because a famous artist told her one time that she could be the greatest artist of her generation if she committed to it full time. Now, who wouldn't, I mean, who would not respond to that? But the problem is, is that she uh, chose to commit herself to something completely different because it was more on her heart than becoming a famous artist. And that simply was, she was a committed Christian and wanted to follow Jesus wherever she went. You know, let me pause there in the story for a minute because I remember growing up in the 70s that there was this uh, onslaught upon women in the home that if you had a talent, you were wasting it if you weren't making money. I mean, you got kids at home, that's great, but I mean, if you really have talent, you, you got to go out and use it so that you're making money because that's the real value of what you're doing. And people do that, and that's fine. What I didn't like was sort of the dismissal that being a mom and being a parent was somehow a lower class element of being a woman and being a mother. So whether you work in the home or not isn't really the issue. The issue is, is that our cultures tend to, to posture our own view of success of what it means to be a woman in the world and what it looks like. It comes in magazines and how you're supposed to look. It comes in magazines that tell you what your home is supposed to look like if you're really hip and culture. It tells you what kind of clothes you have to wear. It tells you what kind of talents are worth marketing out there in the marketplace so that you can really feel successful and value as an individual. You could be a great artist and love to do tremendous artistic things and have the potential to sell your stuff and make money. But Lilius decided that she was going to be committed to a mission to, to the streets and the prostitutes of London and gave girls and women all the help that she could instead of pursuing her talent and her ability. She started a mission in Africa later on on her own she, uh, she was a pioneer missionary. Although she never stopped painting and writing, that was part of her life and hobbies. She didn't create artwork after that for the idea of recognition and making money and being recognized in the museums. She did it to raise money for the mission of helping other girls. Now it doesn't mean having a profession or anything like that isn't valuable, but I, what I hear ringing through the voice of Paul is the Spirit of God saying that the women as part of a local body of believers are incredibly valuable. With all their diverse gifts and all their talents and abilities, what God wants you to do is say, listen, in the Lord, I want you to invest for me. I want you to serve me with all the diligence and all the fervor and enthusiasm, and if that means dragging along your talents to do that and exalt Christ all the better. 
Sometimes the greatest obstacle to doing that has been churches. Because they have this system that says that you can't use your gifts or you can't use your abilities or there's certain things you can and can't do. Some of it depends on the mindset of the church. Some of it depends on the mindset of individuals. But one of the statements that Lilius had made that I thought was provoking to say this, she says, take the very hardest thing in your life, the place of difficulty, outward or inward, and expect God to triumph gloriously in that very spot. Just there, he can bring your soul into blossom. You know, I don't know where you're at, and obviously I can't understand uh, all the framework of how women think. But maybe this morning the issue is not trying to prove your sense of worth to people around you, maybe even especially men, that your life is valuable and just as valuable because, well, we all know that being married, sometimes husbands can be very demeaning and condescending to women like they're lesser people. Sometimes you get that from the culture, and sometimes you get that from work. I remember reading uh, a story about Mary Kay, who put a whole empire together, who did it basically because she got passed over for a man in a position in a company that bothered her so much she went and started her own. Life isn't about reacting and trying to prove something. I want to encourage you that life is about living full on for Jesus. Whatever gifts and talents he gives you, be a woman of influence. Make a difference. You don't have to be a spectator. You don't have to think that your life is less, but we don't want to get into the mode that whatever men can do, we can do better and we can prove it. And so as we look at someone like Phoebe, she's what a heroic person. In a culture very much different than ours as an individual who understand the sacrifice and the service she could contribute to the Lord, she was deeply committed to it. I hope that we can take a journey where we keep giving affirmation to all of our women and our men that God, one of the most incredible, powerful forces in all of God's kingdom, is a woman of faith, empowered by the Spirit of God and understands God's grace in such a way that she doesn't have to prove her worth, she lives out the reality of Christ in a very desperate world. That's what we need in our world. That's what we need to continue to need here at Oak Grove. That's our commitment. Why? Because we all stand before God where there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, barbarians and Scythians, male and female. We all have exactly the same value. We all receive exactly the same love. And God wants us all to be full on for Jesus and changing our world. Pray with me, if you will. Father, we... Wow, long to celebrate your goodness to us. You know, sometimes we struggle with that. We struggle with it in our own personal lives, and so we really at times have a hard time validating your grace in other people's lives.
sometimes the history of the church has had a lot of clutter in it. And some people have felt like second-rate citizens in God's own church. We know we feel it in our culture. We know that sometimes we've felt it in our environment. It depends on whether we've come from a legalistic background or something very more open. Sometimes we're not quite sure how to think about it, and even when we're unsure, we're even less sure how others think about it. So sometimes we're fearful to ask the questions or step out in faith or try to make an, a difference. And I pray, Father, this, that we would create discussion to explore the reality of your grace, first and foremost from your word. We see the value of every human being as we stand before Christ, and from there that we would take steps of faith. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, to value every single member in the body, even though we're very different. We ask you keep changing our hearts, keep opening up our eyes to the horizon of the possibilities of what you can do through us, and we give you thanks in Christ's name, amen.